Hello and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. I'm your host, Tim Moore. My co-host Nathan Jones and I are glad you've joined us for this episode in our Jesus in the Old Testament series. Last week we focused on the book of Isaiah, the first of the major prophetic books in the Old Testament. Isaiah offered a message of warning to Judah. He advised that the sin of God's chosen nation would force the Lord to send it into exile. And in just the first chapter, he proclaimed that the word of the Lord that even the ordained sacrifices and offerings and prayers had become an abomination to God. The Lord had raised up and blessed the sons of Israel, but because they'd revolted against him, he would hide his eyes from them and not listen to their prayers. It's hard to contemplate the despair such abandonment by God would cause. But had the nation heeded the warning, inherited that message, and humbled themselves before God, truly repenting, he would have poured out mercy and loving kindness on them once again. And yet, Isaiah was not merely a prophet of doom. Although his book records historical events from about 740 to 680 B.C., woven throughout are glimpses of great hope, prophecies of the coming Messiah, and the last days when the Lord's anointed takes His stand upon the earth. Some of those were fulfilled 2,000 years ago, and others still await final fulfillment. Miraculously, this ancient text made a dramatic reappearance right as the Lord began to fulfill many of His promises before the watching eyes of the world back in the 20th century. This blast from the past demonstrated the power of God's vision for the ages. Last year, I had the honor to meet Dr. Craig Evans at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Dallas. Dr. Evans is a distinguished professor of Christian origins at Houston Baptist University. He founded the Dead Sea Scrolls Institute at Trinity Western University and is a renowned expert on the scrolls as well as historical and archaeological evidence for Jesus and the Bible. Dr. Evans, I'm so glad the Holy Spirit allowed our paths to cross last year, and I'm glad you could join us today on this episode of Christ in Prophecy. Good to be with you. Well, it is a blessing for us. I know it'll be a blessing for our viewers as well. So, Craig, just tell me, how did the miraculous discovery of the scrolls rock the world in the middle of the 20th century? It rocked the world for a lot of reasons. It was a surprise discovery. Nobody was looking for them. It wasn't the result of an archaeological excavation. It just they came to light all of a sudden at the end of 1947, beginning of 1948. And it wasn't just uh, one or two artifacts, it was an entire library as it turned out. And one of the very first things that was noticed was a complete book of Isaiah, the whole thing, all 66 chapters, and immediately was recognized as being quite old, probably at the time of Jesus, if not earlier, and later tests and studies confirmed that. So it was astounding. Uh, the count now is just under 1,000 documents, more than 200 of them Bible scrolls. So it is indeed the greatest uh, archaeological discovery ever made relating to the Bible. Wow, that is amazing. Do you think the timing of it is important, that it was found in the 40s? Is it relevant to our modern day and age? Do you think it was a God thing? Well, you know, the coincidence, either you believe in unbelievable coincidences <laughs> yeah, we don't. or you recognize there's something going on there because 1947-48, uh, Israel was in the center of world politics, the debate on whether or not the country could even come into existence as a freestanding independent country. That was being hotly debated in the UN. And of course, the UN decided Israel can exist 
and immediately there was a civil war. There were two young postdocs there, John Trevor and William Brownlee. They were among the very first to see the first discoveries from Cave One, including the Great Isaiah Scroll. John Trevor photographed uh, that scroll and three others, and those photographs are famous to this day. And so here it is right in the middle of everything, Israel's uh, a legacy, Israel's heritage has been rediscovered in a sense at the same time the country is refounded. So is that just a coincidence? I don't think so. I think it is indeed providential. I certainly believe it's providential. And Craig, you and I have discussed the fact that they were discovered in such a time that the world could preserve the scrolls for future use. In other words, had they been discovered many, many years ago, they probably would have been lost to antiquity just over time. But I'm also amazed when I go to Israel and take pilgrims to the Israel Museum where they have a facsimile of the famous Isaiah scroll, I've actually stood and watched as little boys and girls, Israelis stand and read the scroll in Hebrew that they are able to understand. It was transcribed by a scribe over 2,000 years ago. And of course, the original text of Isaiah is even older than that. To me, that is another modern day miracle. Well, it certainly is. And, and I know I, I mentioned this to you, Tim, last year, but uh, uh, please, don't think you can do that now, but Bill Brownlee brought the great Isaiah scroll home with him. He was a newly appointed assistant professor of Hebrew Bible at Duke University. He, he had it in a shoebox and he brought it into classroom for his Hebrew students to read it. They actually unrolled it in the classroom. That's an extraordinary thing, but I think it shows you how well preserved it was. That's amazing. Now, previously, when people had a Bible, they could only go back, what, a thousand years or so? But doesn't the finding of the Isaiah scroll move the oldest literal Bible that we have copy back even more hundreds of years? Yeah, you're quite right. Uh, that's Nathan, that's right on the money, because uh, up until the discovery of the scrolls, with one or two very small exceptions, a couple of fragments, one of them the Nash papyrus, well, all we had was the, the great codices, the Leningrad Codex that dates precisely to the year 1008. Now that's 1008 AD. And then the damaged, partially preserved Aleppo Codex, which is probably 50, 60 years older. So to go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls is indeed a leap in time. Now, Isaiah, you go from AD 1000 to about 150 or 200 BC. You're talking about 11, maybe 12 centuries back in time, and it's the same text. And see, there were skeptics who wondered, well, you know, in the passage of time, the text has probably changed, chapters have disappeared, or maybe other chapters have been added. Maybe Isaiah 53 was added by a Christian. It was actually suggested. And then so we find a text that predates Jesus and his ministry by more than a century, and it's all there, all 66 chapters. So that was astounding. Wow. Well, one of the things that's maddening to us uh, who love Israel and who love the Jewish people as Scripture commands is to watch as the Palestinian authorities and others try to discredit the, the Jewish culture and history in the land of Israel. They've tried to erase the archaeology, actually ripping up uh, things that could be found to this day and dumping them in refuse heaps. And that uh, includes even a claim that a mosque existed on the Temple Mount literally since the foundation of the world, which is, <laughs> is just 
so irrational given the, the history of Islam even as a belief system. But too many Christians, sadly, have been duped by this indoctrination and by this propaganda regarding the Jewish origins of our faith and even the Jewishness of our Messiah. Boy, you're absolutely right. And I follow that with great interest when years ago, dump truck load after dump truck load of rubble and soil removed from the Temple Mount in order to get at the foundations of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and, and repair it, that was fine. Israel said, go ahead and do that. But what we'd like is to have some archeologists standing by and watching what's being dug up and the authorities on the Temple Mount, which are Islamic, they said, no, you can't do that. The good news is, is they found the 400 dump truck loads of soil and debris where it got dumped. It's been picked up, placed in another location where there is wet sifting going on and amazing things are being discovered. So some of that lost archeology span probably will uh, be recovered, but I can give you firsthand accounts from archeologists who have had their dig sites vandalized, especially in areas if it's West Bank. And so you're quite correct. I think what it all boils down to is who tells the story correctly involving Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael, and so on. Is it the Quran, which dates to the seventh century AD, or is it to, or is truth told in Genesis, which dates more than a thousand years BC? Well, I, I think you, I know what you would say. Yes. And historians would say, hey, you go with the older source. Well, the problem is, is that biblical archaeology supports Genesis. It doesn't support the Quran, And so that's why there is this effort to try to literally erase and, and crush into dust the past. That's tragic. tragic. It really yeah. is tragic. We've been going through our Jesus in the Old Testament series, every book of the Bible. We're looking for Christophanies, uh, pre-incarnate Jesus appearances, uh, typologies, symbols, and messianic prophecies. Some of the books, I think we've had to struggle a little to find the messianic prophecies and the Christophanies in there. But with Isaiah, Isaiah is absolutely filled with messianic prophecies. Could you give us a few, uh, Dr. Evans? Well, yes, uh, Isaiah. By the way, my dissertation was on Isaiah. And uh, I found I, it was uh, chapter six where Isaiah sees God. That was quite, quite something. But I'm looking at Isaiah chapter nine. Often we hear its words or some of the words in Christmas hymns every year. But Isaiah fore foresees a different kind of a king. And he utters these words where he says, uh, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And, and ancient interpreters wondered, who in the world could this be? And remember the Jewish people, when they were on in their best game, they were strict monotheists. So how is it that there's going to be some son born to them who's going to be called Mighty God? or everlasting father, prince of peace. This was an extraordinary prophecy. Who has fulfilled it? And then in chapter 11, Isaiah says that even though it looks like it's all over for the dynasty of David, out of the stump of Jesse, that is David's father, a shoot will arise, a netzer. And of course, from a Christian point of view, that's netzer, that's Nazareth, that's Nazareth town, where that shoot finally did arise. 
and he's none other than Jesus of Nazareth. So those are two very powerful prophecies. And he comes and he just speaks the word and he judges. Who is this person? And for the early church, they realized it's Jesus of Nazareth who has fulfilled these. But others would say, well, wait a minute, he suffered. Rome defeated him. He died on a cross. How can he be the Messiah? And Christians would point at Isaiah 53 and say, he's the suffering servant. It is his suffering, his death on the cross that made it possible for humankind to be saved, not just Israel, but for all of humankind. So those are just three passages. We could look at others. And when we found Isaiah prior to the Christian period, we knew that those prophecies are genuine prophecies. They're not Christian interpolations trying to show how Jesus fulfilled something that perhaps he did not, but they're genuine, authentic, pre-Jesus prophecies. And that's what makes the book of Isaiah so amazing. Well, Dr. Evans, speaking of incredible prophecies, we know that uh, Isaiah's prophecies demonstrate the reality that he gazed forward into the future and sometimes saw the mountaintops, as we would say in the prophetic realm, without seeing the valleys in between, the passage of time. And so, for instance, when Jesus spoke at the Nazareth uh, synagogue and cited Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3, he read the first half of at least verse 2 before declaring, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That, of course, in Luke chapter 4. But he pointedly closed the book and did not yet declare the rest of the passage fulfilled. But it will be someday. And, of course, you have seen the, the Qumran scrolls with all of these incredible prophecies and insights. So what are some of the other important texts from those Dead Sea Scrolls found at Qumran? Well, you put your finger right on a very important one. Uh, from cave number 11, that's the, the 11th cave, uh, and the 12th cave has since been found with nothing in it, no text, but uh, the first 11 caves had text, adding up to almost a thousand documents. Cave 11 doesn't have very many documents in it, but boy, does it have an important one, and it's document number 13. It's also called 11Q, Qumran, cave 11, 13, or Melchizedek, because it talks about this mysterious figure in Genesis 14, before whom Abraham bowed and paid a tithe. Well, he is seen as an eschatological figure, and what it says about him is extraordinary. And if you read the text, it appears that in some sense, he's the incarnation of God. So I'm not surprised that the author of Hebrews in the New Testament uses Melchizedek as a model for explaining who Jesus is both his suffering and his priestly work, but also his divinity. In this text, which is very eschatologically oriented, it talks about the forgiveness of sin and the forgiveness of debt. It actually quotes Leviticus 25:13, which promised great debt relief for the ancient Israelites. It was called a jubilee, but it had come to be understood as promising an eschatological jubilee where all debts and sins would be forgiven. And by the way, you notice I keep saying debt, sin, as though they're interchangeable. And that's because they're, they're both from the same Aramaic word, choba. And that's why, for example, in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts and forgive us our sins, you have those two variations when you compare Matthew and Luke. And it's because it comes from the same Aramaic word, which Jesus would have uttered. And so the coherence between Jesus's sermon 
in Luke 4, where he quotes, as you said, Isaiah 61, and then what he says about it uh, is illustrated for us so very helpfully by 11Q13. In other words, a lot of the eschatology, a lot of the prophecies, Jesus in the early movement, Christian movement, agreed with the Jewish people. How exactly it got fulfilled, that's where there was some disagreement. And of course, we see that in the synagogue at Nazareth. Jesus then went on to say that the messianic blessings foretold by Isaiah would in fact be shared with Gentiles. And man, the people didn't want to hear that. And they drove him out of the synagogue. So that episode, more than anything else, makes it so clear that yes, these prophecies are being fulfilled. Jesus is the fulfiller, but how he fulfills them just might be controversial. <laughs> yeah, guess so. Well, Professor Evans, uh, you talked about the blessings that can be found in Isaiah. I don't know about you, but I find that a lot of Christians approach Isaiah as a terrible book filled with wrath and judgment and God's going to destroy the world. But then you go all the way up to Isaiah 12 too, for instance, says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for Yahweh. The Lord is my strength and song. He has also become my salvation. I heard a Messianic Jewish group actually sing that as a song. Would you say that, that Isaiah has encouragement for those of us living today? Oh, yes, definitely. Isaiah, Isaiah had a vision of God. And, and ultimately, that's what a true prophet is. The true prophet has seen God, has seen who he is, and it, it breaks the person out of the, uh, I would say, an anthropocentric mindset. We all tend to want to make things fit our comfort. We want things to fit our desires. So in other words, we're very ethnocentric or anthropocentric. The prophet sees God and he becomes theocentric. And that's why Isaiah, when he saw God, said, I'm a dead man. I have, I have of unclean lips. In other words, I am a liar. And I've seen God and it has transformed me. I ought to just be dead. And God's angel then touches his mouth and he says, your lips now are pure. You can speak my truth. And every prophet, true prophet, has that experience. They see God. And that's why we have, to go to your question, your observation, Nathan, that's why we have these two themes everywhere in the prophets and, by the way, in the Psalms, where you, on the one hand, you're praising God, you're thanking him for his salvation, the comfort and deliverance that he offers. And yet, on the other hand, there's an awareness of his judgment. God is holy. God is pure. He does not tolerate sin. He forgives it. But if you revel in it, and, and, and pursue it, there will come judgment. And so you have these twin themes that run throughout Scripture, and that's why. Well, Dr. Evans, uh, your insights on Isaiah are incredible because not only of your study and your experience with the scrolls, but just your love of the Lord, and that comes through in everything that you talk about with us even today. What other insights would you highlight from Isaiah or really any of your other experience in Israel on archaeological digs, uh, important finds that our viewers would be just shocked and blessed to hear about today. Well, let me mention one more scroll. Uh, Jesus is uh, in his ministry. John the Baptist is in prison. John the Baptist is discouraged. John sends messengers to Jesus, and the story is told in Matthew 11 and Luke 7. 
And of course, this is not the kind of thing that Christians were happy about because John says, are you really the Messiah or should we look for somebody else? And Jesus, Jesus gets it. John's discouraged. He says, go back and tell John what you are hearing about, what you're seeing. Tell them that the blind receive their sight, the dead are being raised up, the lame can walk, the poor have good news, proclaim to them. And what he's doing, he's alluding to phrases from Isaiah. And everybody recognizes that. It's Isaiah 35, 5 to 6. It's Isaiah 26, 19. It's the passage we just talked about, Isaiah 61, 1 to 2. But what does Qumran do? Qumran has a text from cave four. We number it number 521. And it says, when the Messiah comes, whom heaven and earth will obey, all these things will happen. The blind will regain their sight. The wounded will be healed. The dead will be raised up. The poor will have good news proclaimed to them. And the amazing thing is this text is describing a Messiah who seems to have the power of God himself. And so here again, Qumran underscores a very important teaching that for Christians will become Christology. So we could go on and on. By the way, if the program was about Paul or James or Hebrews, we could say a whole lot of other things also about how the scrolls have shed light on the New Testament. Archaeology, that's a whole nother thing too. Time and time again, I go to Israel every year except recently because of the pandemic. I go to Israel as often as I can. I'll be going again uh, in May. And I visit the dig sites and talk to the archaeologists. Sometimes I volunteer and dig for a week or two. And boy, is it fun. And it always shows again and again as we excavate, we've studied about 5% of the biblical world. So we have a lot of work left to do. But again and again, it sheds light on the Gospels other parts of the Bible, and that would not be the case if the biblical writings were fiction, if they were full of errors, full of mistakes, had the story wrong, then archaeology would not be a friend. Archaeology would not shed any light on it. There would not be this coherence between archaeology and the biblical records. But in fact, there is coherence and sometimes stunning proof that what the Bible is talking about is absolutely correct. So that's one of the reasons I like going to Israel and I wish more people did. Get to the land of Israel, visit the digs, and you'll be instructed and you'll also be blessed. It's amazing how both the archeology span proves the Bible and the Bible, the historical records prove the Bible so that people could put their faith and trust in the Bible as their foundation for their beliefs. Uh, if I can change topics a little bit, I, I've heard that you've uh, extensively taught throughout Canada. Uh, Tim and I have been following what's going on with Justin Trudeau breaking up the Freedom Convoy, pastors being arrested, uh, LGBT groups uh, calling hate speech, anything that comes out of the Bible. Uh, are you concerned about the censorship and oppression that's growing in what should be a democracy? Uh, I am. Uh, you know, Nathan, if, if we had a long, long time, I could tell you about things I lived in for our errors might not know, but I am a dual citizen. I, I've lived more than half of my life in Canada. My first 35 years as a professor were in Canada. And uh, way, way back uh, 30 years ago or so, uh, a Canadian prime minister actually ordered the RCMP to, without warrant, go onto private property, even go inside homes and tear down signs that people had hung out their windows 
telling the Chinese to get out of uh, Tibet, telling the Chinese to quit oppressing people. And that was when uh, the Chinese premier 30 years ago was visiting Vancouver, British Columbia. And I thought at the time, oh my goodness, you know, isn't free speech protected? Uh, isn't there supposed to be due process? Now that was 30 years ago. There was no pandemic, there was no panic, but the desire was not to offend the visiting premier. Well, why not offend him? Why not let him know what people really think about human rights? Here we see it again, this time uh, pushing people around, trampling them with horses, spraying them in the face with uh, pepper spray because they're not allowed to protest. And so, I don't know, it's, it's a trend. Uh, if you're a Christian, you're told to shut up, but if you're something else, it's okay. You can talk all you want. I have observed that bias for more than 30 years. Uh, yeah, I'm very concerned, and I'm afraid it's starting here, too, in the United States. Well, uh, Dr. Evans, you just uh, touched on what we would call a sign of the times. We try to share one of those every week uh, with things that are happening around the world, not always making the news. Obviously, what has happened in Canada has made a lot of news until it was pushed off the, uh, the front page, so to speak but it is definitely a sign of the time of the erosion of rights and religious liberty, even in a, the traditionally Christian West. Well, again, I'm so glad that we were able to cross paths last year. How can our viewers get in touch with you or at least follow the incredible uh, teachings that you have, the books that you've written, and just uh, follow up with your ministry? Well, it's easy to find me on the uh, internet. Just type in Craig A. Evans. If you leave the A out, you'll bump into a couple of uh, rugby and soccer stars. <laughs> I get confused with them all the time. I don't know why, but anyway, there you are. So insert my middle initial and, of course, .com, uh, www.craigaevans.com, and, and I have a web page and uh, all kinds of information, links to books that I've published, uh, speaking engagements, which recently have been few and far between, and, and other things, that videos that people might find interesting. Well, Dr. Evans, I'm so glad, again, the Holy Spirit allowed our paths to cross in what some would label a coincidence, just like the timing of the finding of the scrolls, I considered a God incident. And I have been blessed not only by our interaction last year, but again today, and I so appreciate you joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Good to be with you. Well, thank you, sir. The Dead Sea Scrolls demonstrate again that God's Word is faithful and true. The fact that the scrolls were discovered just as Israel is being reestablished as a modern nation also proves that God's timing is perfect. It really is. When I visit Israel, I'm also amazed to watch little Jewish children stand and read the ancient text of the Isaiah Scroll in the Israel Museum. We would find it hard to read English from just a few centuries ago, and yet God preserved the Hebrew language just like He preserved the Jewish people. He keeps all of His promises, which is why we can trust Him. Isaiah was blessed to see the Lord sitting on His throne, high and lifted up. His prophetic commission established Him as the first of the major prophets. Well, we could cite so many passages in Isaiah that have Messianic overtones, but our key verses this week clearly point to the Blessed One of Israel, our Messiah, Jesus Christ. So check out 118, 12, 2, and 42, 1 for yourself. Isaiah is such an important book of prophecy. We'll return here again and again, even after our Jesus in the Old Testament series is complete. But next week, we'll move on to Jeremiah, God's prophet of doom. His message of warning is just as relevant today. Well, that's all the time we have. So until next week, I'm Tim Moore. And I'm Nathan Jones saying, look up and be watchful for the chosen one who is our salvation is drawing near. Yeah.